0: Part 1, Chapter 2, Section 1 of Chance by Joseph Conrad This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by Peter Dan. Chance, Part 1, Chapter 2, The Fines and the Girlfriend, Section 1 We were on our feet in the room by then, and Marlow, brown and deliberate, approached the window where Mr. Powell and I had retired. What is the name of your Chance again? he asked. Mr Powell stared for a moment. Oh, the Ferndale, a Liverpool ship, composite built. Ferndale, repeated Marlowe thoughtfully. Ferndale. Know her? Huh? Our friend, I said, knows something of every ship. He seems to have gone about the seas, prying into things considerably. Marlowe smiled. I've seen her at least once. The finest sea boat ever launched, declared Mr Powell sturdily, without exception. She looked a stout, comfortable ship, assented Marlow. Uncommonly comfortable, not very fast, though. She was fast enough for any reasonable man when I was in her, growled Mr. Powell with his back to us. Any ship is that for a reasonable man, generalised Marlow in a conciliatory tone. A sailor isn't a globe trotter. No, muttered Mr. Powell. Time's nothing to him, advanced Marlow. I don't suppose it's much, said Mr. Powell. All the same, a quick passage is a feather in a man's cap. True, but that ornament is for the use of the master only. And by the by, what was his name? The master of the Ferndale? Anthony. Captain Anthony. Just so. Quite right, approved Marlow thoughtfully. And new acquaintance looked over his shoulder. What do you mean? Why is it more right than if it had been Brown? He's known him, probably, I explained. Marlow here appears to know something of every soul that ever went afloat in a sailor's body. Mr Powell seemed wonderfully amenable to verbal suggestions. For looking out of the window, he muttered, he was a good soul. This clearly referred to Captain Anthony of the Ferndale. Marlow addressed his protest to me. I do not know him, I really didn't. He was a good soul. That's nothing very much out of the way, is it? and I didn't even know that much of him. All I knew of him was an accident called fine. At this, Mr. Powell, who evidently could be rebellious too, turned his back squarely on the window. What on earth do you mean? he asked. An accident called fine? he repeated, separating the words with emphasis. Marlow is not disconcerted. I don't mean accident in the sense of a mishap, not in the least. Fine was a good little man in the civil service. By accident I mean that which happens blindly and without intelligent design. That's generally the way a brother-in-law happens into a man's life. Marlowe's tone being apologetic, and our new acquaintance having again turned to the window, I took it upon myself to say, "'You are justified.' "'There is very little intelligent design in the majority of marriages, "'but they are none the worse for that. "'Intelligence leads people astray as far as passion sometimes. "'I know you are not a cynic.' Marlowe smiled his retrospective smile, "'which was kind, as though he bore no grudge against people he used to know. "'Little Fine's marriage was quite successful. "'There was no design at all in it. "'Fine, you must know, was an enthusiastic pedestrian.' He spent his holidays tramping all over our native land. His tastes were simple. He put infinite conviction and perseverance into his holidays. At the proper season you would meet in the fields, fine, a serious-faced, broad-chested little man with a shabby knapsack on his back, making for some church steeple. He had a horror of roads. He wrote once a little book called The Tramp's Itinerary and was recognised as an authority on the footpaths of England. So, one year, in his favourite over-the-field, back-way fashion, he entered a pretty Surrey village, where he met Miss Anthony. Pure accident, you see. They came to an understanding, across some style, most likely. Little Fine held very solemn views as to the destiny of women on this earth, the nature of our sublunary love, the obligations of this transient life, and so on. He probably disclosed them to his future wife. Miss Anthony's views of life were very decided too, but in a different way. I don't know the story of their wooing. I imagine it was carried on clandestinely, and I am certain with portentous gravity at the back of copses behind hedges. Why was it carried on clandestinely? I inquired. Because of the lady's father. He was a savage sentimentalist who had his own decided views of his paternal prerogatives. It was a terror, but the only evidence of imaginative faculty about Fine was his pride in his wife's parentage. It stimulated his ingenuity, too. Difficult, is it not, to introduce one's wife's maiden name into general conversation? But my simple Fine made use of Captain Anthony for that purpose, or else I would never have even heard of the man. My wife's sailor brother, was the phrase. He trotted out the sailor brother in a pretty wide range of subjects, Indian and colonial affairs, matters of trade, talk of travels, of seaside holidays, and so on. Once, I remember, my wife's sailor brother, Captain Anthony, being produced in connection with nothing less recondite than a sunset. And little Fine never failed to add, the son of Carlian Anthony, the poet, you know. He used to lower his voice for that statement, and people were impressed, or pretended to be. The late Carlian Anthony, the poet, sang in his time of the domestic and social amenities of our age with a most felicitous versification, his object being, in his own words, to glorify the result of six thousand years evolution towards the refinement of thought, manners and feelings. Why he fixed the term at six thousand years, I don't know. His poems read like sentimental novels told in verse of a really superior quality. You felt as if you were being taken out for a delightful country drive by a charming lady in a pony carriage. But in his domestic life, that same Carly and Anthony showed traces of the primitive cave-dweller's temperament. He was a massive, implacable man, with a handsome face, arbitrary and exacting with his dependents, but marvellously suave in his manner to admiring strangers.' These contrasted displays must have been particularly exasperating to his long-suffering family. After his second wife's death, his boy, whom he persisted by a mere whim in educating at home, ran away in conventional style and, as if disgusted with the amenities of civilization, threw himself, figuratively speaking, into the sea. The daughter, the elder of the two children, either from compassion or because women are naturally more enduring, remained in bondage to the poet for several years till she too seized a chance of escape by throwing herself into the arms, the muscular arms, of the pedestrian fine. This was either great luck or great sagacity. A civil servant is, I should imagine, the last human being in the world to preserve those trays of the cave dweller from which she was fleeing. Her father would never consent to see her after the marriage. Such unforgiving selfishness is difficult to understand, unless as a perverse sort of refinement. There were also doubts as to Carly and Anthony's complete sanity for some considerable time before he died. Most of the above I elicited from Marlowe. for all I knew of Carly and Anthony was his unexciting but fascinating verse. Marlowe assured me that the Fine marriage was perfectly successful and even happy, in an earnest, unplayful fashion, being blessed besides by three healthy, active, self-reliant children, all girls. They were all pedestrians too. Even the youngest would wander away for miles if not restrained. Mrs Fine had a ruddy, out-of-doors complexion and wore blouses with a starched front, like a man's shirt, a stand-up collar and a long necktie. Marlowe had made their acquaintance one summer in the country, where they were accustomed to take a cottage for the holidays. At this point we were interrupted by Mr Powell, who declared that he must leave us. The tide was on the turn, he announced, coming away from the window abruptly. He wanted to be on board his cutter before she swung, and of course he would sleep on board. Never slept away from the cutter while on a cruise. He was gone in a moment, unceremoniously, but giving us no offence and leaving behind an impression as though we had known him for a long time. The ingenuous way he had told us of his start in life had something to do with putting him on that footing with us. I gave no thought to seeing him again. Marlow expressed a confident hope of coming across him before long. He cruises about the mouth of the river all the summer. He will be easy to find any weekend, he remarked, ringing the bell so that we might settle up with the waiter. Later on, I asked Marlowe why he wished to cultivate this chance acquaintance. He confessed apologetically that it was the commonest sort of curiosity. I flatter myself that I understand all sorts of curiosity. Curiosity about daily facts, about daily things, about daily men. It is the most respectable faculty of the human mind. In fact, I cannot conceive the use of an incurious mind. It would be like a chamber perpetually locked up. But, in this particular case, Mr. Powell seemed to have given us already a complete insight into his personality, such as it was. A personality capable of perception and with a feeling for the vagaries of fate, but essentially simple in itself. Marlowe agreed with me so far. He explained, however, that his curiosity was not excited by Mr. Powell exclusively. It originated a good way further back in the fact of his accidental acquaintance with the Fynes in the country. This chance meeting with a man who had sailed with Captain Anthony had revived it. It had revived it to some purpose, to such purpose that, to me too, was given the knowledge of its origin and of its nature. It was given to me in several stages, at intervals, which are not indicated here. On this first occasion, I remarked to Marlow with some surprise, "'But if I remember rightly, you said you didn't know Captain Anthony.' "'No, I never saw the man. It's years ago now, but I seem to hear solemn little Fyne's deep voice announcing the approaching visit of his wife's brother, the son of the poet, you know. He had just arrived in London from a long voyage, and directly his occupations permitted was coming down to stay with his relatives for a few weeks.' No doubt we too should find many things to talk about by ourselves in reference to our common calling, added little Fine portentously in his grave undertones, as if the merchant marine were a secret society. You must understand that I cultivated the Fynes only in the country, in their holiday time. This was the third year. Of their existence in town I knew no more than may be inferred from analogy. I played chess with Fine in the late afternoon, and sometimes came over to the cottage early enough to have tea with the whole family at a big round table. They sat about it, an unsmiling, sunburnt company of very few words indeed. Even the children were silent, and as if contemptuous of each other and of their elders. Fine muttered sometimes deep down in his chest some insignificant remark. Mrs Fine smiled mechanically, she had splendid teeth while distributing tea and bread and butter. A something which was not coldness, not yet indifference, but a sort of peculiar self-possession, gave her the appearance of a very trustworthy, very capable and excellent governess. As if Fine were a widower, and the children not her own, but only entrusted to her calm, efficient, unemotional care. One expected her to address Fine as Mr. When she called him John, it surprised one like a shocking familiarity. The atmosphere of that holiday was, if I may put it so, brightly dull, healthy faces, fair complexions, clear eyes and never a frank smile in the whole lot unless perhaps from a girlfriend. The girlfriend problem exercised me greatly. How and where the Fines got all these pretty creatures to come and stay with them I can't imagine. I had at first the wild suspicion that they were obtained to amuse Fine, But I soon discovered that he could hardly tell one from the other, though obviously their presence met with his solemn approval. These girls, in fact, came for Mrs. Fine. They treated her with admiring deference. She answered to some need of theirs. They sat at her feet. They were like disciples. It was very curious. Of Fine they took but scanty notice. As to myself, I was made to feel that I did not exist. "'After tea we would sit down to chess, "'and then find everlasting gravity became faintly tinged "'by an attenuated gleam of something inward "'which resembled sly satisfaction. "'Of the divine frivolity of laughter "'he was only capable over a chessboard. "'Certain positions of the game struck him as humorous, "'which nothing else on earth could do. "'He used to beat you,' I asserted with confidence.' Yes, he used to beat me, Marlowe owned up hastily. So he and Fine played two games after tea. The children romped together outside, gravely, unplayfully, as one would expect from Fine's children, and Mrs Fine would be gone to the bottom of the garden with the girlfriend of the week. She always walked off directly after tea with her arm around the girlfriend's waist. Marlowe said that there was only one girlfriend with whom he had conversed at all, it had happened quite unexpectedly, long after he had given up all hope of getting in touch with these reserved friends. One day he saw a woman walking about on the edge of a high quarry, which rose a sheer hundred feet at least from the road, winding up the hill out of which it had been excavated. He shouted warningly to her from below, where he happened to be passing. She was really in considerable danger. At the sound of his voice, she started back and retreated out of his sight amongst some young Scotch firs growing near the very brink of the precipice. I sat down on a bank of grass, Marlow went on. She had given me a turn. The hem of her skirt seemed to float over that awful sheer drop. She was so close to the edge. An absurd thing to do, a perfectly mad trick, for no conceivable object. I was reflecting on the foolhardiness of the average girl and remembering some other instances of the kind when she came into view, walking down the steep curve of the road. She had Mrs. Fine's walking stick and was escorted by the fine dog. Her dead white face struck me with astonishment, so that I forgot to raise my hat. I just sat and stared. The dog, a vivacious and amiable animal which for some inscrutable reason had bestowed his friendship on my unworthy self, rushed up the bank demonstratively and insinuated himself under my arm. The girlfriend, it was one of them, went past some way as though she had not seen me, then stopped and called the dog to her several times. But he only nestled closer to my side, and when I tried to push him away, developed that remarkable power of internal resistance by which a dog makes himself practically immovable by anything short of a kick. She looked over her shoulder, and her arched eyebrows frowned above her blanched face. It was almost a scowl. Then the expression changed. She looked unhappy. Come here, she cried once more in an angry and distressed tone. I took off my hat at last, but the dog, hanging out his tongue with that cheerfully imbecile expression some dogs know so well how to put on when it suits their purpose, pretended to be deaf. She cried from a distance, desperately, ''Perhaps you would take him to the cottage then! I can't wait!'' ''I won't be responsible for that dog!'' I protested, getting down the bank and advancing towards her. She looked very hurt, apparently, by the desertion of the dog. "'But if you let me walk with you, who will follow us all right?' I suggested. She moved on without answering me. The dog launched himself suddenly full speed down the road, receding from us in a small cloud of dust. It vanished in the distance, and presently we came up with him lying on the grass. He panted in the shade of the hedge with shining eyes, but pretended not to see us. We had not exchanged a word so far. The girl, by my side, gave him a scornful glance in passing. "'He offered to come with me,' she remarked bitterly. "'And then abandoned you,' I sympathised. "'It looks very unchivalrous, but that's merely his want of tact. "'I believe he meant to protect against your reckless proceedings. "'What made you come so near the edge of that quarry? "'The earth might have given way. "'Haven't you noticed a smashed fir tree at the bottom? "'Tumbled over only the other morning after a night's rain.' I don't see why I shouldn't be as reckless as I please. I was nettled by her brusque manner of asserting her folly, and I told her that neither did I as far as that went, in a tone which almost suggested that she was welcome to break a neck for all I cared. This was considerably more than I meant, but I don't like rude girls. I had been introduced to her only the day before, at the round tea table, and she had barely acknowledged the introduction. I had not caught her name, but I had noticed her fine, arched eyebrows, which, so the physiognomists say, are a sign of courage. I examined her appearance quietly. Her hair was nearly black, her eyes blue, deeply shaded by long, dark eyelashes. She had a little colour now. She looked straight before her. The corner of her lip on my side drooped a little. Her chin was fine, somewhat pointed. I went on to say that some regard for others should stand in the way of one's playing with danger. I urged, playfully, the distress of the poor fines in case of accident, if nothing else. I told her that she did not know the bucolic mind. Had she given occasion for a coroner's inquest, the verdict would have been suicide, with the implication of unhappy love. They would never be able to understand that she had taken the trouble to climb over two post and rail fences only for the fun of being reckless. Indeed, even as I talked chaffingly, I was greatly struck myself by the fact. She retorted that once one was dead, what horrid people thought of one did not matter. It was said with infinite contempt, but something like a suppressed quaver in the voice made me look at her again. I perceived then that her thick eyelashes were wet. This surprising discovery silenced me, as you may guess. She looked unhappy, and I don't know how to say it. Well, it suited her. The clouded brow, the pained mouth, the vague, fixed glance. A victim. And this characteristic aspect made her attractive. An individual touch, you know. The dog had run on ahead and now gazed at us by the side of the Fiennes Garden Gate in a tense attitude and wagging his stumpy tail very, very slowly with an air of concentrated attention. The girlfriend of the Fynes bolted violently through the aforesaid gate and into the cottage, leaving me on the road. Astounded. A couple of hours afterwards I returned to the cottage for chess, as usual. I saw neither the girl nor Mrs. Fine then. We had our two games, and on parting I warned Fyne that I was called to town on business and might be away for some time. He regretted it very much. His brother-in-law was expected next day, but he didn't know whether he was a chess player. Captain Anthony, the son of the poet, you know, was of a retiring disposition, shy with strangers, unused to society, and very much devoted to his calling, Fine explained. All the time they had been married, he could be induced only once before to come and stay with them for a few days. He had had a rather unhappy boyhood, and it made him a silent man but no doubt concluded fine as if dealing portentously with a mystery we two sailors should find much to say to one another the point was never settled i was detained in town from week to week till it seemed hardly worth while to go back but as i had kept on my rooms in the farmhouse i concluded to go down again for a few days it was late deep dusk when i got out at our little country station My eyes fell on the unmistakable broad back and the muscular legs in cycling stockings of Little Fine. He passed along the carriages rapidly towards the rear of the train, which presently pulled out, and left him solitary at the end of the rustic platform. When he came back to where I waited, I perceived that he was much perturbed, so perturbed as to forget the convention of the usual greetings. He only exclaimed, Oh, on recognising me, and stopped, irresolute. When I asked him if he had been expecting somebody by that train, he didn't seem to know. He stammered disconnectedly. I looked hard at him. To all appearance, he was perfectly sober. Moreover, to suspect fine of a lapse from the proprieties, high or low, great or small, was absurd. He was also a too serious and deliberate person to go mad suddenly. But as he seemed to have forgotten that he had a tongue in his head, I concluded I would leave him to his mystery. To my surprise, he followed me out of the station and kept by my side, though I did not encourage him. I did not, however, repulse his attempts at conversation. He was no longer expecting me, he said. He had given me up, the weather had been uniformly fine, and so on. I gathered also that the son of the poet had curtailed his stay somewhat and gone back to his ship the day before. That information touched me but little, believing in hereditary and moderation i knew well how sea-life fashions a man outwardly and stamps his soul with the mark of a certain prosaic fitness because a sailor is not an adventurer i expressed no regret at missing captain anthony and we proceeded in silence still on approaching the holiday cottage fine suddenly and unexpectedly broke it by the hurried declaration that he would go on with me a little farther "'Go with you to your door,' he mumbled, "'and started forward to the little gate, "'where the shadowy figure of Mrs. Fine hovered clearly on the lookout for him. "'She was alone. "'The children must have been already in bed, "'and I saw no attending friend shadow near her vague but unmistakable form, "'half lost in the obscurity of the little garden. "'I heard Fine exclaim, "'Nothing.' "'And then Mrs. Fine's well-trained, responsible voice uttered the words, "'It's what I have said.' with incisive equanimity. By that time I had passed on, raising my hat. Almost at once Fine caught me up and slowed down to my strolling gait, which must have been infinitely irksome to his high pedestrian faculties. I am sure that all his muscular person must have suffered from awful physical boredom, but he did not attempt to charm it away by conversation. He preserved a portentous and dreary silence, and I was bored too. Suddenly I perceived the menace of even worse boredom. Yes, he was so silent because he had something to tell me. I became extremely frightened. But man, reckless animal, is so made that in him curiosity, the paltriest curiosity, will overcome all terrors, every disgust and even despair itself. To my laconic invitation to come in for a drink, he answered by a deep, gravely accented, Thanks, I will as though it were a response in church. His face, as seen in the lamplight, gave me no clue to the character of the impending communication, as indeed from the nature of things it couldn't do, its normal expression being already that of the utmost possible seriousness. It was perfect and immovable, and for certainty if he had something excruciatingly funny to tell me it would be all the same. He gazed at me earnestly, and delivered himself of some weighty remarks on Mrs Fyne's desire to befriend, counsel and guide young girls of all sorts on the path of life. It was a voluntary mission. He approved his wife's action, and also her views and principles in general. All this with a solemn countenance and in deep, measured tones. Yet somehow I got an irresistible conviction that he was exasperated by something in particular. In the unworthy hope of being amused by the misfortunes of a fellow creature, I asked him, point-blank, what was wrong now? What was wrong was that a girlfriend was missing. She had been missing precisely since six o'clock that morning. The woman who did the work of the cottage saw her going out at that hour for a walk. The pedestrian finds' idea of a walk were extensive, but the girl did not turn up for lunch, nor yet for tea, nor yet for dinner. She had not turned up by footpath, road or rail. He had been reluctant to make inquiries that would have set all the village talking. The Fynes had expected her to reappear every moment till the shades of the night and the silence of slumber had stolen gradually over the wide and peaceful rural landscape commanded by the cottage. After telling me that much, Fynes sat helpless in unconclusive agony. Going to bed was out of the question. Neither could any steps be taken just then what to do with himself, he did not know. I asked him if this was the same young lady I saw a day or two before I went to town. He really could not remember. Was she a girl with dark hair and blue eyes? I asked further. He really couldn't tell what colour her eyes were. He was very unobservant, except as to the peculiarities of footpaths on which he was an authority. I thought with amazement and some admiration that Mrs. Fine's young disciples were to her husband's gravity no more than evanescent shadows. However, with but little hesitation, Fine ventured to affirm that, yes, her hair was of some dark shade. We had a good deal to do with that girl, first and last, he explained solemnly. Then, getting up as if moved by a spring, he snatched his cap off the table. She may be back in the cottage, he cried in his bass voice. I followed him out on the road. It was one of those dewy, clear, starry nights, oppressing our spirit, crushing our pride by the brilliant evidence of the awful loneliness of the hopeless, obscure insignificance of our globe, lost in the splendid revelation of a glittering, soulless universe. I hate such skies. Daylight is friendly to man, toiling under a sun which warms his heart, and cloudy, soft nights are more kindly to our littleness. I nearly ran back again to my lighted parlour. Fine fussing in a knickerbocker suit before the hosts of heaven on a shadowy earth about a transient phantom-like girl seemed too ridiculous to associate with. On the other hand, there was something fascinating in the very absurdity. He cut along in his best pedestrian style, and I found myself let in for a spell of severe exercise at eleven o'clock at night. In the distance, over the fields and trees smudging and blotching the vast obscurity, one lighted window of the cottage with the blind up was like a bright beacon kept alight to guide the lost wanderer. Inside, at the table bearing the lamp, we saw Mrs Fine sitting with folded arms and not a hair of her head out of place. She looked exactly like a governess who had put the children to bed, and her manner to me was just the neutral manner of a governess. To her husband too, for that matter. Fine told her that I was fully informed. Not a muscle of her ruddy, smooth, handsome face moved. She had schooled herself in that sort of thing. Having seen two successive wives of the delicate poet chivied and worried into their graves, she had adopted that cool, detached manner to meet her gifted father's outbreaks of selfish temper. It was now become a second nature. I suppose she was always like that, even in the very hour of elopement with Fine. That transaction, when one remembered it in her presence, acquired a quaintly marvellous aspect to one's imagination. But somehow her self-possession matched very well Little Fine's invariable solemnity. I was rather sorry for him. Wasn't he worried? The agony of solemnity. At the same time, I was amused. I didn't take a gloomy view of that vanishing girl trick. Somehow I couldn't. But I said nothing. None of us said anything. We sat about that big round table as if assembled for a conference and looked at each other in a sort of fatuous consternation. I would have ended up by laughing outright if I had not been saved from that impropriety by poor Fine becoming preposterous. He began with grave anguish to talk of going to the police in the morning, of printing descriptive bills, of setting people to drag the ponds for miles around. It was extremely gruesome. I murmured something about communicating with the young lady's relatives. It seemed to me a very natural suggestion, but Fine and his wife exchanged such a significant glance that I felt as though I had made a tactless remark. But I really wanted to help poor Fine, and as I could see that, manlike, he suffered from the present inability to act, the passive waiting, I said, Nothing of this can be done till tomorrow. But as you have given me an insight into the nature of your thoughts, I can tell you what may be done at once. We may go and look at the bottom of the old quarry, which is on the level of the road, about a mile from here. The couple made big eyes at this, and then I told them of my meeting with the girl. You may be surprised, but I assure you I had not perceived this aspect of it till that very moment. It was like a startling revelation, the past throwing a sinister light on the future. Fine opened his mouth gravely and as gravely shut it. Nothing more. Mrs. Fine said "You had better go, with an air as if her self-position had been pricked with a pin in some secret place. And I, you know how stupid I can be at times, I perceived with dismay for the first time that by pandering to Fine's morbid fancies I had let myself in for some more severe exercise. And wasn't I sorry I spoke? You know how I hate walking, at least on solid rural earth, for I can walk a ship's deck a whole foggy night through, if necessary, and think little of it. There is some satisfaction, too, in playing the vagabond in the streets of a big town till the sky pales above the ridges of the roofs. I've done that repeatedly for pleasure, of a sort. But to tramp the slumbering countryside in the dark is for me a wearisome nightmare of exertion. With perfect attachment, Mrs. Fine watched me go out after her husband. That woman was flint. End of part one, chapter two, section one.